Hi, Steve. Hi, Susie. So, we're doing men's health. Apparently. You know, of all the topics we've covered so far, this is the one I care about the least. <laughs> you, you what? Sorry. Run that by me again? I'm just not that into it. It's it's not my thing, men's health. There are, there are so many people and types of people in different circumstances who are who are struggling with disadvantage and I just can't seem to generate much sympathy for the need to worry about men's health. I mean, it's good that someone's doing it. That's fantastic that someone is taking care of it. But it's just I just don't believe in it. <laughs> you don't believe in men's health. Well, well, it's not like Santa. Or God. I mean, I know that it exists. <laughs> so I know it exists. I'm glad someone is looking after it, but it's definitely not for me. Wow. Can we unpack that just a bit? Because that does surprise me about, about you. I suppose we know I'm a feminist. I care a lot about, about women and women's issues. I care deeply about injustices and people who are struggling and men who are struggling. But when we start talking about men and men's health, my hackles go up, um, I guess, because men as a group are the most advantaged group around. Despite all those many advantages that they enjoy, men are not doing well, are they? Well, they're doing better than some people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could, I could read into a lot of statistics and data. I would have thought that was pretty clear that, that socially and economically and psychologically, men do do better as a group than, than other groups, don't they? I would think that the disadvantages that women face and the suffering that women experience is, to put it in very crude terms, the result of what sometimes gets labelled toxic masculinity. And given how interested you absolutely are in addressing those things, maybe doing something about the cause would be a good place to start. Well, no, not to start, but a good part of the solution, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And that's why I think it is really good that there are there are organisations and there are people who are interested in this and who care a lot about men's health as a thing. But it's not me. As John Lennon said, we're all doing the best we can. And, and of course, we have to prioritise. You can't, you can't try and do something for everybody or you end up doing nothing for anybody. I think that there is something around dialogue around men from what I've, I've seen where it moves very quickly from let's address toxic masculinity and have these conversations. And then in some groups and some organisations, it moves into, oh, men, they're hard done by. And I'm good with one. And with the other, not so much. Men in general enjoy economic advantage is not the same as saying that men are doing well. I mean, in particular, young men are struggling with their mental health. I know it's mental health is an issue for all young people, but I think there's a particular kind of difficulty for young men, something to do with young men face a clash between expectations of their parents and perhaps in particular their fathers, what's required of them, what's demanded of them, and what they're actually able to give. And the other forces operating in society that suggest that that old model, if you like, is no longer appropriate. Um, one thing that touches me quite deeply is when I have clients... Men with, with young children who, and, and these men are the, the sons of, if you like, the old-fashioned Australian male, you know, laconic, reserved, maybe never tells his kids that he loves them, although they know that he does. 
Maybe he's a bit hard on them because it's his way or the highway. And these men that I'm seeing as my, my clients are determined to be very demonstrative with their children, to cuddle them and hug them a lot, to tell them that they love them, to spend time with them. And what, it, what moves me about that is the thought that this cycle, which may have been going on for, I don't know, generations upon generations, hundreds of years, maybe forever, is finally being broken. I mean, it seems like a trivial thing, but to me, when at the end of the grand final, you see the players, they'll, they'll go to their partners and they'll get their children, their, their sometimes very young children, and bring them onto the, onto the pitch. Whereas, you know, a generation ago, women and children would, and football just did not mix. There was no connection there at all. I think that's lovely, Steve. It's it's so important for the for the individuals and for us as a society. And I mean, I I have sons, and there are men and young men in particular who I care really deeply about. And it's a wonderful thing if if it's becoming easier for them to be more demonstrative and to be more in touch with their emotions. Where it's a problem for me is where I start hearing about a focus on men that implies that they are struggling and that they are silenced. And then that turns into feminism has gone too far and there are unfair double standards and it's so hard to be a man. And you don't know if you're safe to say something. You can't just talk like you used to talk and all these kinds of sentiments. I, I find that very irritating. And, and as a result, discussion about men's movements and men's health triggers that, that distaste in me. And I'd agree with you on that. But let me speak as the representative of white Anglo, <laughs> Anglo malehood to complain that we're now being silenced and that we can't speak is a, is a ridiculous notion. I think it's a, it's a silly and thoughtless idea. And that we are uncomfortable that some of the things that we used to say without a second thought, now we're having to second guess and try and work out what the effect will be on the person that we're talking to. That's terrific. I'm glad. I'm glad about that. So we're, we're in agreement on parts, but I'm, we're still not quite on the same line. I've got someone I'd like you to meet. I was introduced to this guy recently. He runs the Melbourne Men's Group, and I think he's a very eloquent spokesman for some of the things that we're trying to tease out here. Shall we? Okay. Let's see if he can convince me. <laughs> Today on the Bloom Podcast, we're joined by Dave Mallard from Melbourne Men's Group. Welcome, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for joining us. So Melbourne Men's Group was formed in 1998, so it's not new. It's been around for 22 years. It was formed after myself and another guy called Roger Hilton. We met at, at a workshop, uh, a men's workshop. We found that experience to be really impactful. And we said, why don't we start a men's group as a way of, you know, regularly checking in with each other about what's happened post the workshop and, you know, what's happening in your life and just to talk about stuff. We have over a thousand members and it's free. You know, the actual organisation is incorporated. We have a website, mensgroup.melbourne, and there's a registered charity. And there are pre-COVID face-to-face meetings each week in different parts of Melbourne. And it's a place where men meet to talk. It's not the traditional or the usual form of conversation that you might hear at a barbecue. What job do you do? What car do you drive? What footy team do you follow? <laughs> Which is the general way that men converse with each other. Those sorts of questions are actually banned. <laughs> 
what we do is encourage men to sit in circle with each other and listen to what the other man is saying. But we do have some criteria around how the process works. And for a lot of men, it's somewhat challenging in the sense that what we ask men to do is talk about how they're feeling. We don't ask them to talk about their job or how much money they earn or what car they drive or what they did in the last week. It's more about in the moment, how are you actually feeling right now? And this for a lot of men is very challenging because it talks to the question of vulnerability and authenticity. And this is a real challenge for most men because it's this question of being open, honest, vulnerable and authentic is not something that's part of the conversation in masculinity in Australia. Fundamentally, this is the process of the men's group. It's about creating authentic relationships where men can be open, honest and vulnerable with each other without being judged, without being laughed at and importantly, without being fixed. What I mean by that is, you know, men tend to be very outcome focused and typically if you share something with them, they'll often give you a solution. whether that solution is, why don't you try this? Or how about you do that? Or this is what I did, you know. And inherently in that solution is that person's judgment about what you're saying. One of our ground rules and expectations of how we run our organization is men don't need to be fixed because they're not broken. However, that doesn't mean you can't learn a lot, particularly about yourself. And so the the fundamental purpose of the organization is to unhook the emotional straitjacket that men are socialized within in our culture and this emotional straitjacket gets put on, you know, pretty much the first day of school um, where young boys are policed into masculinity. Don't be emotional. Don't show your emotions. Don't share who you really are. Um, you know, harden up. Don't be a girl. Don't be a sissy, you know. So boys learn to not express their humanity. That causes a lot of downstream dysfunctions at all levels and at all ages, in fact. The purpose of our organisation is to offer men the opportunity to explore a different form of masculinity without making them wrong, but in a more balanced way so that they embrace more of their the natural humanity that they're born with, but they often aren't encouraged to express as men in, in the culture in Australia. Dave, give us an example. Give us a concrete example of a, a man that you've known and how this has made a difference for him. There was a guy who came to one of our circles, and I recall this very specifically. He, you know, we have a something called this talking circle, and we have a thing called a talking stick, which is basically a vehicle for, you know, when you hold the talking stick, you've got the floor, and everyone else listens to you. And if you have something to say, that's fine. If you don't have something to say, that's fine as well. You don't have to be in there to say something. You just listen. But there was a particular guy. He did a pass. He didn't want to say anything. But he got. We got to the end of the circle, and and he, he picked up the talking stick, and he said, "I just want to. I just want to say something." And he listened to everyone else. He, he issued just a few words, and it was quite profound. He said, "I've listened to what everyone has to say. All I want to say is that now I don't feel so alone." It's just a few words, but it was so profound because this is what it's all about. It's that sense of isolation that that haunts men in our culture. Because we're brought up not to share and be real with each other as guys. We, 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 we get brought up to compare each other and be compulsively competitive, you know, which is why men ask, what job do you do? Because that's a sorting process in their mind. If you're a CEO of an organisation or, or, or you're a, um, a, a garbo, I'm going to treat you in a certain way. So in our culture, isolation is endemic. Research supports this quite clearly, Beyond Blue and others have done a lot of research into men and why there's such a high suicide rate for guys in in our country. Of all the suicides, three out of four are men. And, you know, every week there's 45 men kill themselves in this country. 45 every week in this country. And one of the contributing factors is this is this sense of isolation, which, you know, starts in childhood and is encouraged through our culture of what it means to be a man, in inverted commas, in Australia. 
that's just a very simple example of this sense of isolation that men have to deal with. And what we do is open pathways to personal growth and development and building your level of emotional intelligence, your emotional literacy, being able to express in a way that um, is authentic, particularly with other guys, but also with other people, women, obviously, and families. But it's all about um, unhooking the emotional straitjacket that all men in our country are um, burdened with. And Dave, where does that where does that come from? Why do men not want to talk to each other? And- well, yeah, it's a really good question. It's part of the socialisation in our culture around what it means to be a man in inverted commas, or what it means to be masculine. We we are taught and supported in our culture to be compulsively competitive with other guys because it's a competition. Where are the male role models? The mature masculine male role models, there's not many. The male the role models are footballers or action heroes, you know, shoot them up. And when kids get to the schoolyard, you know, at the age of five, they are fundamentally policed by other kids in the school, by their fathers. Harden up is a very common term you'll hear still here and it's really disappointing but you still hear these things harden up don't be a sissy big boys don't cry what are you a girl be a man and these are these are the messages that boys hear and is reinforced to them time and time again so they learn that if they actually express an emote they get um castigated for it so it starts at a very early age and it continues right through to adulthood and you'll see it in teenagers and young blokes trying to prove their masculinity by driving fast cars or getting into groups. There's very few, if any, healthy, mature rites of passage processes for blokes, or young blokes, as moving into adulthood. And in fact, in our, in our culture, it's actually probably more accurate to say most adults are really immature, pathologically immature. And that's true of men as, as well as women, but um, particularly for men. I'm not sure if you're being very hard on Australian culture in particular, Dave. Haven't most cultures always been like this? There have always been men sent off to war, sent off to be killed. Yeah, it's it's a factor of patriarchy, I sense, to some extent. And it's not just Australia. It's Western culture and and other cultures as well, of course. And, you know, that's the disposability of men. Underlying, you know, these sorts of conversations, there is an expectation and disposability that men have to live with. So you see this through war. You also see it through workplace. Most, not all, but certainly the vast majority of higher risk jobs are taken by men. Actually, more than 95% of workplace deaths are men. Most of the caring professions, it's it's women who take those roles. And we hear a lot in our culture, and fairly, I think, too, that we need more female CEOs, we need more, more female in leadership roles in, in business. Totally agree. But we also need more males in caring roles like teaching. There's very few male teachers. As boys move through the teaching system, there's no male role, male role models around them because it's mostly feminized because it's women around them. There's nothing wrong with women. But women are not men. So where does a boy learn how to be a man? Particularly in the case, in our culture too, there's a vast majority of, not a majority maybe, but a a large minority of families that are single parent families where the man is not there. And so this creates a a male deficit in in many kids' lives, many boys' lives, like a father deficit. There's, you know, some terms called a father deficit disorder. Some research been done around that. But, um, so these things, you're right, this this thing around this masculinity and this disposability, if you like, of men is common amongst a lot of cultures. And it's, you know, it's part of the whole underlying questions of what does it mean to be a man and masculinity? I care very much about marginalised and disadvantaged groups. But for me, the gender pay gap is 14%. Women attempt suicide two to three more times more commonly than, than men do. I'm a, I'm a feminist. Why should I be concerned about, about men? We all have fathers, and a lot of us have brothers, and a lot of us have husbands. (laughs) 
they're hurting in different ways that, that you may not be aware of. That's one thing. Why should you care about men? Well, men have a six-year lower lifespan. As I said, 95% of workplace deaths are men. One in four Australian men are socially, socially isolated. I could use lots of stats, as could anyone, to support a particular case. 90% of prisoners are men. You know, 90% of convicted acts of violence are conducted by men. 70% of the victims are men. These are the actions we see, which in a lot of ways are formed by the disconnection from men from their emotions and their inner landscape, which is impacted and is encouraged by the culture we live in. Dave, I have I have two sons, a son and a stepson who are both 15. So last chance for me to uh, to inject a bit of parenting into them. What do I need to do to make sure they grow up to be the kind of men that we, we want as our sons? So important, yeah. Give them access to other men around them because they need role models and they need to be able to talk about talk to men about what does it mean actually to be a man. It's so important because men need to spend, and we see this through even like the men's group process. Men actually, they love spending time with other men and talking about men's issues. And all Indigenous cultures do this. Men sit in circle with other men talking about men's stuff. In Western cultures, that's been lost, right? Um, but it's actually really healthy. Because, we, you know, you need to talk. To, it's really helpful to talk to another guy about a guy's issues. And so for young guys, young, young fellows who are in that period between teenage and adult, at least legally in our culture, it is important to be able to spend time with other men. But there's also, there's lots of programs around for young blokes. You know, like the Pathways to Manhood program is a great program, which look to support young blokes moving through their teenage years and trying to navigate their way through to, you know, in inverted commas, manhood in a way that's sustainable and supports themselves and supports the women around them and, you know, and creates balance in their life. Thank you, Dave. That's been inspiring. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Great. That was really good. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk about uh, Melbourne Men's Group and I certainly encourage anyone who's interested to have a look at our website, mensgroup.melbourne. That's it. <laughs> it's fairly simple. But we're a not-for-profit and a voluntary organisation and we do good work. Good to chat. Thank you. That's been great, Dave. Thank you very much indeed. So, Susie, are you convinced? Well, it was certainly interesting and it was there were ways of thinking about men that I've never never really thought about before, certainly in terms of being emotionally straight-jacketed and having that, that sense of isolation. Steve, you're a man. <laughs> Last time I looked. <laughs> <laughs> what does being a man feel like to you? Do you feel like you're in an emotional straitjacket and that it's an intrinsic part of being a man? No, I, I don't believe I do. I think that's partly because of my own makeup. I much prefer the company of women to men generally, but the men that I do choose to hang around with are not men who have trouble talking about their feelings. But then perhaps I'm not the right person to ask about that because it might be that I am withdrawn in, in certain areas. There's a kind of cliche about, you know, the men standing at the barbecue asking each other how they got there, what route they took and what, you know, whether they went down the freeway and took the, the second turn off and, and all of that. And I think something that Dave said about men's inclination is to fix things. They want to repair things. I certainly remember with my daughter, she came home from school one day and she'd been having some kind of a, a row with her friends. And she was telling me about this. And, and I made the mistake of wanting to tell her how I thought she might repair the situation. And her face kind of turned to stone 
because clearly that wasn't why she was telling me. And yet with a man, if you were talking about that kind of thing, you, you usually are kind of saying, what would you suggest? How do we go about fixing that? So I certainly recognize some of those characteristics of the, the male psyche, but I don't feel frozen in that way and I don't feel uncommunicative. Certainly men being often being more outcome focused is something I have seen as well. I really can see where you're coming from with this, because at a structural level, at an economic level, there really are differences and they are nearly all in men's favour. But somehow it seems to me that that it's dangerously close to stereotyping, actually, that you're dismissing half the human race, not dismissing half the human race, but but labelling half the human race that because of, you know, patriarchy, therefore... And because some men will then start to complain that they're not allowed to say what they think or that they don't know how to act anymore, therefore all men. And that doesn't seem to me to be either either tenable or really quite like the you that I know. Hashtag not all men. Well, yes. I mean, it's a hashtag for, for a reason and it's justly, I guess, derided. But at the same time, why do men say that? What, what are they trying to express when they say that? Well, I think this is a whole other argument. It's all right. I've got all day. Take your time. <laughs> <laughs> so sticking with men's health and not going down the the (laughs) hashtag not all men rabbit hole. It doesn't feel to me like one of the world's biggest problems. It doesn't feel to me like something I need to, to be worried about. This might be a bit of a long bow, but I saw some statistics recently about the countries which had done worst under COVID. And you look at the leaders of those countries and and indeed the countries that have done best under COVID. You look at the leaders of those countries where it has been worst and you see, I think, great examples of toxic masculinity, of narcissism, of, of sociopathic leaders. That's just one example of the damage that they can cause. That That is the cause. The patriarchy is the cause of all this. So it needs to be addressed for the sake of the men who are, I won't say that they're as oppressed as the women. If they're the cause of it, if we don't do something about that, then it will continue. My emotion here is a little similar to our discussions about race and colour, actually, where what I said was I didn't really talk, I don't talk to to white people about race. I don't try and campaign and try and fix the the racism problem that exists in some people. I just leave that, I leave that be. I'm just, I'm just over it and I'm done. And I think maybe there's the same thing going along here. For me, uh, the men's, men's health, actually exactly the same. I'm really glad and grateful that somebody is thinking about these things and doing that work. Yeah. But it's not for me. Yes. And I'm not suggesting that you should down tools as a feminist and rush over to the to the men's side and help out there. No, not at all. In terms of where this discussion has led me, one thing I really found interesting, Steve, was when Dave talked about how a boy learns how to become a man and having male, those male role models and what that means to a boy. I have I have two wonderful sons, my son and my stepson, and making it personal always helps me to, helps many of us to, to understand a concept. So thinking about what is it for a boy how does he learn to become a man? What about a boy who doesn't have a father, a father figure 
who's brought up by a woman or two women or or someone who doesn't identify as a man or this is very common that that a boy may not have these role models in their life so what does that mean for them i'm not sure where that thinking is leading me it's made me feel more thoughtful and look at all of this men's health and uh all of these issues with a a kindly uh, thought pattern. I don't know quite what to say to that, apart from good. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we need to let this soak in and give me a a couple of months and in a future episode I'll uh, tell you if if I've come out as all (laughs) passionate and caring about men's health. Thanks for listening to The Bloom Podcast today. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see your feedback.